destroying the entire universe. Welcome to Radio Free Deimos, an Ixundraconistan podcast broadcasting from ASAF Hall at Lake Voltaire on Deimos. Deimos, less is more, and we have so much less. And we're getting more or less. We are getting more or less. Rapidly. <laughs> this is episode 36 of Radio Free Deimos, host chatter. So in this episode, we're going to take a look at some new products and new directions for HSD. It's been a while on that. Talk about our home campaign, which just wrapped up a plot arc. Answer the very pressing question that was not actually asked to any of us. What is the right size for a gaming table? Someone's going to say seven feet. That tracks. Talk about what's new and exciting. And then go home for recess, I guess. Uh, But first, let's get to know our host a little bit better. With me this week is Ashtar and Wines, and I'm Corbeau. Since we're talking about some directions for the future of HSD, I'd like to ask you what the next Ixundraconis character you're going to write up is going to be. Secrets. Secrets. Well, I want to I know anyway. For me, I think if we're looking at 2.0, which has some much more colorful combat options, I've always wanted to play a thrown weapon specialist with a deck of slightly enhanced playing cards that can kind of cut through things like a Dirty Pair episode. I did that once with a character that wielded thrown chopsticks, and it was very satisfying. Hmm. So far as 1.0 goes, I'm not sure. I haven't really thought of a new character for that one for a while. And I'll just let that question hang there. I think in either, given a chance to play HSD, I would probably expand a little bit more on the character that I played in the 2.0 demo that we had, which is a winged fox that kind of expands a little bit more on the mechanical or the technique side. Well, for for my part, yeah, I'd probably <clears throat> yeah continue with the the character that I we played in that playtest. Since was it your last D and D campaign, Ashtar, a while back, where I played a non anthro wolf brawler fighter specializing in kind of takedowns and stuff like that. I've really kind of been a trajectory emphasizing that, which in in any game system, barehanded combat is always a terrible idea, but I don't mind. It's kind of fun, and since I like playing hyenas who are kind of lunks. That, that seems to kind of fit. That character back then was going to be a fighter bard to emphasize the social nature of, of canines. And I'm kind of with, with Io, I've been continuing that to make basically a pure non-combat, heavily social character who also has a bit of, of a barehanded brawling skill because she's a non-answer hyena. I did miss the command rules in the 2.0 game we played. Yeah. That was kind of a fun mechanic that brought some neat strategy to the board. And that's one that was missing. If you've ever wondered why every rule system has several pages long grappling subset of rules, yeah. this is your guy. <laughs> uh-huh. And they're almost always terrible. <laughs> but, but when you actually pull it off, nobody was prepared for it to actually work. And so they're all kind of flummoxed. So they don't know what to do next. Just like the GM. Yes. It has taken you centuries to even grasp what we developed eons of your years ago. Very little that's new on the Radio Free Demos website this month. We've been distracted by other projects and fun campaigns and such like. I'd like to call out the last two episodes. There's a chance you did not hear them because I had them flagged as not safe for work. They are very gently not safe for work. This is a two-episode pair where Arthur Pierce Frazier answers a few questions about vector, quote, relationships, unquote. A pair of light, slightly see me episodes so if you missed episode 34 and 35 check them out on our website boy how can anything that big hide for so long a time yeah i wonder what their next move will be so a lot of teasers for the Draconis game and one new release since we last had our general post wrap session if you go to the weapons grade funk page on drive through RPG. The new fiction compilation is up and running. It's 
free or pay what you want to contains four new short stories which expand on the hsd lore and give some sense for where the setting is drifting i think it's supposed to go back and visit a lot of the older characters from the transitional text and color text from the first two books in some of the uh, contracts and it's also going to have the important lore bits from core extended and other books that may not make it into 2.0 so get this free downloadable and you'll have access to those if the edition changes over so the mechanics will change but the story bits will be still in your hands a nice option is this free or pay, pay what you want uh, the recommended cost is $3, okay. but it was a Kickstarter release. This is kind of a gift to the fan community. So it's pay what you want, and maybe that's 50 cents. Maybe that's a nickel. Maybe it is free. I don't know how DriveThruRPG handles these things. Mm-hmm. But it's not expensive. Right. Unless you want it to be. It is expensive. It is as expensive as you want it to be, yes. And if you're generous and want to give $10,000 to the game developer, go for it. Sure. That's your reclaiming surgery you're not getting. (laughs) (laughs) There was a message posted to the official Ixodraconis Discord channel that really opened up the roadmap to the game for the next probably two years or so, given the rate books are released right now. Pierce posted his personal workflow, work in progress Trello to the readers there. I'm not going to link to this on the show notes because I don't know how secret secret that information is but it was a really neat peek into the future of the game i'm going to go into a list here so y'all can chime in or not as you see fit but there was so much so much information there now we can start off with some of the kind of spin-off products there was talk of an allegiance card game a board game accessories for the mini set and adversaries for the mini set some new like hair and body stuff and a possible sequel to the Fate's Fang novel. And none of this is really written in stone. It's just kind of being floated. Some of it's in playtest right now. The 2.0 stuff is. So there's some kind of off-the-combat grid stuff that might be released. Mm -hmm. There were some accessories to the actual HSD game, which from our experience in the 2.0 game really helps kind of streamline combat when you can have that stuff right in front of you and it doesn't freeze your character sheet up a little bit. An NPC deck, don't know what that's going to be. And this really excited me, LARP rules. I really think that HSD is going to convert well to a LARP because it's got a lot of built-in PC antagonism right there for you so you can have the more player-character-driven plots. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more when we get to, like, what is the appropriate size for your table. But I think the game is going to LARP really well. We'll see how that goes. I'm excited. I can't wait for the zero-G sport rules. (laughs) The LARP long-range combat rules. (laughs) How do you hold your hands to indicate that you're a thousand meters away? You, like, curve your finger to do an exponential, uh-huh. and then the number of fingers on the next hand shows your distance. Okay. And then you can't play rock, paper, scissors, though, so it gets very tricky. Right. Predictably, there's going to be another contract. This one's going to be IR- IRFP-focused, maybe. IRPF-focused? What did I say? IRFP. I guess that's probably different. Slightly. And then some core stuff, a book of accessor- <laughs> accessories, a book of adversaries, and adversary accessories. <laughs> adversary, yes. <laughs> Wear your adversary like a purse. Uh, a vehicle book and a story building system, which is going to mesh somehow with the NPC deck. It's going to be suggestions and maybe some tables and things like that for plot generation, encounters, uh, NPC hooks, PC hooks, getting people together at the tavern. I don't really know where it's going to be, but it's going to be a GM resource for encounters, which is something that. Uh, 4.0 really would have benefited from back in the day. Mm -hmm. And that is actually something that I'm pretty excited to see. When you stay in kind of the high fantasy realm, we have tons of tropes and tons of stories that kind of provide frameworks to build stories around. There's a lot of things that you can put in that are kind of somewhat recognizable to PCs. Sci-fi is a little bit more remote from a lot of fans today. The, the stories and the tropes aren't quite as well built out. So bringing some of that into the story itself, into HSD itself, I think will be a really good resource. The game is driven on a kind of Shadowrun mo- model, which makes it very modular. You have these little mini missions that you can kind of send the party down the road on if you're in a hurry. So I think it's a game that does pick up really well and throws them together in a hurry on a, on a Friday evening pretty well. So this would help game masters that are trying to run HSD from the... Was there the back of their pants? Seat of the pants. Seat of the pants, yeah. And you can use those little plots to build up your your 
bigger plot arches as well. It's not shallow stuff. So yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what that looks like as a product. I think the first iteration of the book was kind of lacking in terms of Game Master advice, uh, mostly concentrated on like lore and story building and things like that. So this will be a, a new direction. How can any race be so stupid? Ah, oh, don't ask me any questions. I'm just a hard hand just like you. So questions and opinions, because we don't really have answers here. We lost the book. In the Exodraconus Discord channel, the question came up of what is the right size for a gaming table? And that seems like a really hard question to answer because it's tied so intimately into what type of game you're going to run. But it seemed like a fun question to dig into. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> At one end, we were talking to some friends who are doing a very casual D&D thing, and they're talking about having, what, eight or nine players? Yeah, nine at the high end with people kind of wandering in and out. And I, when he mentioned that, I, I kind of immediately said, you've got a lot of people having off-topic conversations and cell phone videos problem, don't you? And he's like, yes, yes, we do. <laughs> Which is a problem was when you have that many people, time is divided among them. And when you have a large number of people at a table, um, when, when combat or a, a turn-based thing is happening, it's a long time between turns. And the nature of this kind of casual gaming is that people are drifting in and out of the game over the course of sessions. So you're going to have a lot of rules refreshing as well, which is going to stretch that combat out even more. Right. And people who are not as invested in the game because they're only there occasionally, so they don't care that much. And so it's more reasonable to start having side conversations or pulling out cell phones. It's possible this cannot happen. But the more people you have, the odds that there is a big disconnect between the most hardcore gamer and the least hardcore gamer over how much side conversation, how many YouTube videos are appropriate at a game table, and it's probably going to end up as a a conflict. Smaller number of people, there's more of a chance for everyone to to feel actively involved at all times and to come to a kind of a consensus as to how to approach things. I think even in social areas where there there is no turn sequence, I think what I've seen in large games is that, well, people are polite. People try to make time for other people, Mm -hmm. um, except the ones that aren't so polite end up dominating a lot of time and also, people get in the habit of, oh, Fred's the one that talks. Fred's talking a lot. Let's just back off and let Fred talk a lot. Which happens less when Fred is one out of four. But when Fred is one out of nine and Fred really gets going, a lot of people just, you know, well, even if they're not being rude and pulling out their cell phones, just kind of shut down and just let him steer. And that's not so fun for well everyone, really. We were in that one campaign that ran for maybe six or eight months every other week or so. And that was a nine person game. It was a Ravenloft game. Right. So very stylish and slow build and character focused setting with nine people at the table. It's very hard to have that kind of character development going on, but the game master cared and everybody did care and they did show up reliably, but it ended up being that only like two or three people were the actual focus of the story and everybody else was just kind of trying to fill their time, which right. was its own form of awkward in kind of a different direction, but there was still so much just PC downtime during it. Yeah. And when I was running my D&D game for a while, I, I tried to be very casual player positive um, just to let people who weren't so hardcore play. And the problem is preparing a game when you really have no idea how many people show up. Oh. Uh, scaling up, well, okay, and this is D&D 4.0 with a fairly heavy combat bent. Scaling up to a certain extent is possible. It's like, oh, okay, I'll just add one or two more of these but scaling down past a certain point, it's like the center of this, this was going to be this dragon. And now there's not enough people to effectively fight it. So, okay, now I have to come up with a whole new thing. And if you're a good game master, you're developing the game for various players' strengths. And then when those Jenga pieces get pulled out. Right, right. And that's, that's kind of frustrating. The, the flip side of this, as long as I'm dominating the conversation, is yep, with... Yep, with yep, yeah, yep, 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 yep. <laughs> really. With a small table, uh, I think we've done this. We've had as few as four. Have we, have we had three in the past? Once or twice. It's something we try and avoid. Yeah. With four people, if you lose one person, you can probably play. And, and again, any size table, people will occasionally be busy. Uh, life interferes. If your table is very small, that means one person or two people, if like one of them is, is a couple, and if one of them doesn't show up, they're probably not both not going to show up. If you're down to two players, 
It's hard to play a game with just two players. It's probably easier to get them both at the table at the same time. Well, I mean, the two remaining players. But I see with a, with a couple, right? They'll, they'll at least tend to average out their idiosyncrasies. But, but yeah, so small tables are hit more heavily by scheduling conflicts or just random life interference. I think if you want to do something experimental and really story-driven, three might be a fairly good number. Like, I could imagine three being a strong number for like a Vampire the Masquerade thing or some campaign that plays out over the course of several years. You're trying new ideas. There's enough there to have some conflict between PCs, some, some instability, some chaos generated by the players. But it's still at the point where the game master is going to be more writing a novel than dealing with just the kind of stir fried random that you get at a, a full table. Right. Well, and another factor. Yeah. I mean, smaller tables, I think, are more positive, more positive towards heavily character story driven stuff. But not everybody has an interest in character story driven stuff like Kaim at our table um, doesn't really want to push that direction, which is fine. One of the. What was it? D&D had the notion of the different kinds of players, like the hack and slash player, the this, the that. One of them is like the GM's girlfriend character. Mm-hmm. People that just don't really want to have really complex characters. They don't want things to center around them. I mean, honestly, that, that describes me in a lot of games. Like, I just want to help out, which, which over time, I think I'm getting better about that. But at a tiny, small table, if you have one or two people who don't really want to have complex characters with lots of complexities that need to be played out... Well, now it's all about that one guy who is the only one who has a complex background. And so it's it's the role playing system of Bob, <laughs> which eh, it, it loses the collaborative feel in that case. Smaller tables can definitely benefit a little bit more from the story driven side. They really start having problems on the combat side. Most combats, most encounters are not naturally scaled for about two or three people and just the fact of losing one person out of a three-person party down for the count or having to pull from combat to do something else is a much harder hit than a party of five or six. That also plays into D&D made it very open that they were kind of following certain archetypes. You had the different types of the tank, the healer, the damage dealer, or the burst damage dealer, and the controller, which naturally pushed your party to, okay, you're looking at a default of four minimum, and then you want to add one or two more to kind of round out, provide some depth and backup. And Werewolf the Apocalypse does that too with the five different character classes, auspices of, of Werewolf. You have the fighter, mage, trickster, thief, and then the bard, which nobody knows what to do with. Well, that's why they get the fifth slot. Mm. Also, larger tables, like, like one thing that... <clears throat> Corbeau frequently does with his characters is in combat, he's doing something not combat related, something plot related, but he's decided, you know, y'all are fighting. I'm going to go deface the demon monument or something, have some crazy idea that may be a good idea or it may fail. Um, it's interesting. It's, it's not just, I hit the dragon again for five points of damage. In my defense, I want to say, I'm usually trying to help the combat. I'm sure, not just sure. starting around. Oh no. Some yeah. people do. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so, Some people will just kind of wander, have their characters wander off in combat and just say, I'm going to go spray paint the barn, which is, well, that, that's a shootable offense in, in my mind. Yeah. Uh, God in 4.0. Ooh. Yeah. Well, but, but in a larger table, having one person just doing kind of crazy long shot ideas is fine. In a three person table, uh, the, That's the, some resources the, the gone. Makes, yeah, it makes the two people have to really struggle to, to carry the, the burden. So far as party size goes, I, I think this may be like a, a personal idiosyncrasy. I find myself really triggered somehow by the idea of a one-player game. It just viscerally upsets and frightens me, and I, I don't think there's a good reason for it. It's certainly not a rational thing. It just seems so alien. Right. Well, because D&D is, well, role-playing games in general, pattern after D&D, they're team games, they're collaborative games, and a lot of the interest is the players bouncing off of each other. Uh, I have a hard time understanding how it works without that. I mean, people do it. People make it work and they report that it's fun. I'll take their word for it. It seems Uh, like it'd be more like psychotherapy than a role-playing session. Yeah. Tell me about your character. Well, but in principle, you have the full attention of your game master. And I think in a lot of those games, your game master 
Is your boyfriend or girlfriend? Yeah, if I'm going to be spending four hours, <laughs> this is not how I'm going to be spending it with my boyfriend or girlfriend. Yes. I think I read short stories about this. <laughs> <laughs> we go to Goodwill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, that, that, that's a weird one. It be, might be interesting to hear some perspectives of somebody with more experience of that. But I think we might just kind of look at them and say, whatever you're doing, it's interesting, but it's not the kind of games that we're playing. Yeah. So now that we've kind of defined everything that it's not, I'll go ahead and come out and say it. I prefer five people, five players around the game. So a six person table that really hits the right balance for me. You generally are going to have a nice balance on the combat side, a little bit of depth, and then the players will naturally start gravitating to different areas where they find uh, expertise or specializations. Five kind of gives you a nice balance between a decent spread with some overlap and backup. And in the end, it is always nice to have that odd number around the table mm. so that the as a GM, you can let the players bicker and let them kind of playfully argue amongst themselves, but you never fully deadlock. I think four is my personal favorite because I tend to favor character-driven games and five tends to be a little easier to run if you're combat-focused. But four is dangerous. If you lose a player, you, you can kind of fall apart doing that. So yeah, I'd, I'd say to have the spare, five is my ideal. I can handle six. Six isn't bad. But it really starts bogging down when you when you hit uh, like combat and someone's always left out of the of the deeper RP scenes. Wait a second. Your game had five people. Which of us was your spare? <laughs> <laughs> I'll let y'all fight about that one. Uh -huh. So I'm going to speak up for the 17 person table. Uh -huh. I, we've been in at least one very bad 10 person game, but the natural size of a live action role playing game is one storyteller, maybe an assistant, and something like 15 people. And the reason for this is in a live-action game, maybe it's because of the type of people that play live-action games, you have people that engage in interaction that becomes plot. And whether through antagonism, side plots, the game master kind of simply stirs occasionally or whatever, the PCs become the primary driver of plot in that game, and having a large number of people there really helps keep that kettle boiling. It's good to have a spare game master just kind of, you know, run run side scenes and things like that. But the higher numbers there, it starts to liberate the game master from plotting <laughs> at least smaller things. And that's, that's exciting and fun when it's run well, which maybe not run at all. I'm not sure. I'm speaking in circles here. But you, you don't have the problem of the uh, of the small game party that, OK, they're in a town. And they, you know, well, what do you do next? And they're also kind of staring at each other. It's like, well, you haven't given us, given us any plot threads to follow. These guys make trouble for themselves, as I understand it. I've never played a LARP. I, ideally, yes. But you can easily have people that don't, that newbies can have some real trouble if they come in and aren't immediately integrated into the game. Right. If, if you're, if the game is too large and the player, the storyteller can't dip in occasionally and stir things up, then you'll lose newbies. They'll have the trouble finding meaningful plots and meaningful interaction with the overarching story but it is a system that really favors like a 12 to 15 person group i think that starts to get to the ideal size of a small larp hmm. it, it occurs to me that some of the behaviors which are useful in a larp like you describe are behaviors which are hair-pullingly impossible in a small D, &D game i think if you, if you move people who are as i understand it ha have backgrounds in larps have good good habits those habits on the D&D table where they start like, oh, I'm going to play a Kender. I'm going to start stealing from the other characters because, you know, I, I want to make make conflicts. And the serious war gamers are like, we're in combat. Why are you stealing my sword? I'm going to murder you. Well, the stupid, like the players stealing from players uh -huh. is obnoxious. And players thwarting other players for no good reason is obnoxious. I, I In any gaming circumstance, I hate that stuff. Good. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. But this is more like my character is a mad scientist and another character is a firebrand of the local church and they're going to have some, they're going to be organizing against each other on some level. Uh -huh. Or my character is TTI and my character is progenitus and we're both trying to get to the same goal at the same place. Petty stuff, no, never. But um, the incessant bantering and clever dialogue, that can get annoying at a D&D game. True, true. When it becomes like a side, a side thing. As long as it's in character and it's useful that that adds color that adds flavor and keeps it from being more of just a by the rules by the book combat simulator 
it can. It's worth pointing out that this is a, a truth, but not a great truth. Dialogue is not plot. A game master would be good to realize that at some point in time, the conversation may very well be circling the drain and he's not noticing it because it sounds like it's an exciting conversation, but it could be stalling for time on the part of the parties trying to figure out what's next. So there, there has to be a balance. But chatter is exciting and fun for, you know, 30 minutes to stretch. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like we've killed this question? I could batter it upside the head a few more times, but, but you know, I think we've, we've covered it pretty well. Is there a size that's particularly ideal for Ixun Draconis? I have a hard time, and I might be wrong, I have a hard time really looking at HSD as a, a real combat game for, for war gamers, but there's evidence that I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, for some people, I think for some furries, it's, one of, it's going to be one of their only options, because furries, in my experience, that don't have a deep RPG background, tend to latch onto the one that's got the cutest foxes, sure. which is going to be Eccentriconus, for my preference, or Iron... Iron Claw? Iron Claw. Uh-huh. Uh, I think we've made the right choice there. <laughs> I think if you take a look at the uh, contracts a little bit closer, it does come, it has a more balance towards combat. Not saying that all combat by any means, uh-huh. but if your only experience is my game, I do tend to run a little bit more combat lean. And I mean, that might color your experience with HSD right. to date. Sure. And I'm certainly not complaining about that. 2.0 does seem to go in a more tactical direction that seems to have picked up some of the everybody has useful combat abilities from D&D 4.0 type style playing. Uh-huh. So I suspect that one is going to be easier to run as a grid game should you choose to. I, I do think that the number kind of comes down to whether you're running a combat heavy or plot heavy game or culture interaction heavy game rather right and also another thing that goes into it is the age of your players if you're playing with a bunch of people who are young and whose lives are very much in chaos you might have to budget for more people to drop out every week it might be practical to have seven players just to maintain five any given week Uh, whereas if you play with people who are for whatever reason maybe 50 something nerds that have nothing better to do. <laughs> I'm not saying anything about myself. Um, who will reliably show up and you don't really need to budget for that. You can kind of really fine tune exactly what you want because, you know, barring funerals or furry conventions, they're going to show up. Especially if they're the guys that own the house and the literal <laughs> table, because if they're not available, then there's no game. We'll own you the table. I We've got a combination lock on the door. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> One, two, three, four. That's my combination. <laughs> Change the combination of my luggage immediately. This is the most fantastic story I've ever heard. And every word of it's true, too. In our Sunday game, we wrapped up a plot arc fairly recently. Our characters, newly contracted to Progenitus, went on a mercy mission to a Pulse town. What was the name of the town? Azure something or the other. Azure Azure went to the town of Azure Moor on a mercy mission to rescue some people that were stricken by chronic pulse. And well, I, I, I feel like my various pulse illusions have been destroyed utterly. I blame sound and silence. I mean, sound and silence did definitely introduce a different aspect to pulse than I necessarily had in mind previously. And there was a couple of things I was trying to illustrate within there. Um, but hopefully that didn't completely change Pulse. No, I did feel like it was kind of a, like a Pulse attack directly against me. Um, <laughs> I don't have a persecution complex specifically, but that is how it felt. I do. Well, anyway, our characters went into a city. It was basically a FIFA-style soccer grudge where red versus blue were brawling in the streets and over the streets and on the fly wires above the streets the catwalks catwalks in the taverns outside the taverns that basically about probably a quarter of the city was one sustained brawl and or people betting on the brawl and somewhere in there was the living MacGuffin that was the new progenitus convert we had to find and rescue yeah the guy who bailed on progenitus yeah yeah the, the, the setting of the game of, of the city completely full of sports people brawling with each other reminded me from very early on, we were first playing 4th edition and really still learning the rules. And at one point, the GM set up a game and she says, okay, the entire board is difficult terrain. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Which was 
terrible. And I was thinking, it's kind of like that. I mean, in, in, in a social way, instead, it just felt like there is nowhere we can go. Whatever color we wear, the other team is going to find us and beat us up. Yeah, there was the sense, like in a 4.0 campaign, that no matter what you do, you're going to have an encounter. Yeah. And we tried to play, well, I tried to play neutral for a while, and that just got us beaten up by both sides. <laughs> Yeah, and your captain is, she's a pretty level-headed lady, but someone throws something, she throws it back, and well, yeah, we saw where that goes. So ultimately, after navigating this crazy city, we did sort of find the person, or at least his relative, and then tracked our MacGuffin down to a sports arena, which I guess most of the city is in some sense a sports arena. Mm -hmm. Pulse cities are like onions, because they smell funny. Because they're fried and sold it. No. <laughs> and in the Coliseum, we met our MacGuffin character who died a sudden death, not at our hands, thankfully. And this triggered our character's first brush with the alien in this world. It was tied into some of the conspiracies we've been dealing with in the past. That was exciting. But we encountered whispers for the first time. And I think that is a character. Well, I think that's a game changing event for sure. Yeah, I'm very proud that, yes, we were suddenly confront, confronted by whispers. The captain said run, and everyone ran, and that was the right thing to do. We didn't, that, we that, didn't that, all run away. That way we survived the carpet bombing. <laughs> the fact that I took away all of your major weapons and armor might have had something to do with it, since, you know, this was brawl, not active combat. But yes, no, nobody became whisper casualty number 47. I'm not sure the weapons would have helped. When you... When you describe the Whispers, they do have combat stats. Mm -hmm. um, how reasonable it is to attempt to fight them is a different matter, but I'll, I'll throw it out there. They do have combat stats. Right. Well, how reasonable it is to fight the one that is now five, that is now seven, in the middle of a very, very crowded area. I can do math. They, they literally <laughs> are made of blood, so you know they bleed. Yes. And if they bleed... And Pulse cities have a lot of blood. <laughs> On display. So on the subject of Pulse, we have a fiercely competitive environment. People are frantically taking sides, even if they didn't really have to. It sounds like that new Pulse immigrates to the city would have just decided to have a side just to be confrontational and in your face about things. Everybody was striving to be the best they could be, or at least the loudest, or at least jockey reposition all the time. And, you know, I like, I like a lot of the Pulse branding. I like their slightly crazy marketing perspective. But this was really challenging uh, as a character that's relatively soft-spoken. So that was that was new and uh, disconcerting, actually. No, and this was definitely like meant to show a different side of Pulse. You, you really have the marketing forward, loud colors, brash message, maybe cleaner Pulse. But you also have some of the more athletic, some of the more competitive edge Pulse as well. And... Okay, so we just had about 10 minutes of missing time, and I've forgotten what the last sentence is. So let's just begin this one again. Wines was talking about how the storyteller's opinion really doesn't matter. Oh, I think we had moved well into Pulse. Right, and I was... Okay. So one of this... Like, this specific view into Pulse was really supposed to be... You know, a very narrow view into a very specific time. This is kind of the crescendo of a team sport. And I really was thinking of Ireland, England, football, World Cup type stuff. Yeah, the entire city was a set piece. In, in a sense, very much so. Um, and, and I was actually trying to give Pulse a, a different view into Pulse. Because if you are only looking at the first book, then Pulse comes across... Comedic. Almost comedic, but also very, very polished, very, you, you see the message, you see the message that kind of Pulse is trying to project, perhaps. And in keeping with a lot of our talk about how everything in the first book really kind of feels almost utopic, um, that, that's not the whole story. We got a fun look at some of the uh, more mascot level characters. What do they call them? The flares? Uh, beacons and... Beacons. Kindling. Coin. Kindling, yeah kindling because they start the fire so and again building out the pulse worldview we also got to look at uh, some of the kindling and beacon characters the beacons are kind of these bigger than life sometimes even superheroic characters that they're central they're 
like public mascots, public heroes, a lot of, a lot of maybe, maybe not worship level fandom, but definitely they are the center of attention and bring that fire to the world around them. Definitely social worship, full on A-list celebrity style. Yeah. So the, uh, the werewolf fan of the group really liked the, um, oh God, Calamity Overdrive. Was that his name? A big, 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 big lupine that could shower the area around him with electricity from some magical lightning gland. I don't know where he stuck that. And then could turn into a giant feral wolf that did much of the same thing. Uh, we, we like that one a lot. <laughs> it was naked. We like that one a lot. So that was a combination of different, mut- different surgeries there within the book. Um, the transformation, explosive transformation. Very popular. Uh, with a quickened, once you get enough skill use into it. The alternate form had both lateral and macro in this case. Kind of werewolfy, but very, very much specifically chosen for style, substance, and the type of thing of as you're looking at a superhero that's approaching a larger fight, exploding into a very, very large red wolf and just going nuts. Yeah, that, that was fun. And we're sorry we didn't get to see the, uh, the Wildcats mascot. I assume he was hidden for some sort of plot related reason. <laughs> I was pretty sure the guy we were going to track down because we're going to end up being the mascot for the other team somehow and not a pile of blood monsters <laughs> there were a couple of hints out there at the same time i mean beacons are really supposed to be larger than life personalities i really didn't want to throw y'all at them unless y'all were just full-on charging that way because there's a very real danger of trying to take on the beacon and it's hard to steer the game away from that if that's what's on the PC's mind. Mm-hmm. So one place that I think we Wines and I kind of wobbled on, but it's also very true to this particular part of the setting, is the idea of low stakes combat. This is something early on I experimented with in my D&D game, and it never quite clicked for me. And that is combat without the threat of death for NPCs, because, you know, you don't want death... <laughs> I don't, I don't know how to work, work around this in my head. I, I don't want to support murder, but sometimes death is inevitable. And so a lot of my games tend to have um, optional death rules and soft hit points rather than kills, that sort of thing. And I've also set up a number of situations where you're basically boffing the enemy rather than murdering them. So more King of the Hill style stuff than murder hobos, uh-huh. which is... A lot of the scenario here, we were playing up in the rafters and things like that where a fall could be fatal, but generally it was a somewhat good-humored brawl without a high threat of death, and the threat of death really should have stayed only threat. That creates a level of just kind of almost falsity in my game. There was If there's never a threat, then the scenario just doesn't have teeth. Mm-hmm. If there's no risk, especially a risk of some sort of loss or some sort of defeat, then it's not really a conflict yeah and yes i'll admit um i was definitely playing around with some less than lethal combat or some other options that didn't bring on assault rifles and heavy armor and i don't think it was really that successful the combats definitely went through there there was some challenge and there was some technical interest but um i think we're where they were less than successful is there wasn't really a very clear win state or loss state uh-huh. You didn't really have a lost state of getting killed. The combat was never going to go that way. You didn't really have a win state either because you had I'd kind of taken away one of a party's, one of the PC's favorite tactics, which is, you know, focus down the healer or focus down some of the weaker parties and yeah. take advantage of weaknesses. There was nearly an infinite number of antagonists. In, in one of the two. So it... Yeah. I'm not putting you on the spot. No, just observing. And like I said, I'm, I'm okay ripping this one apart because I don't think here's one of the more successful combats I've run. I think it would have been a lot more successful if there had been a asymmetric win or loss condition. Like, th- this is the combat, this is how you're working through the combat, but you're actually trying to do something completely different. <laughs> really impressed Calamity Overdrive. Maybe Senpai <laughs> will notice me. <laughs> right. Exactly. Or if it had been phrased as a sportsing match where you had some sort of ball that you were protecting or a goal that you were trying to achieve. And the combat was just kind of a very loose combat around it. And after that, you fell back on the more skill challenge tools that we're used to playing with. And that worked fairly well. That mm-hmm. flowed. I, I like skill challenges. Yeah. The, 
I definitely use kind of a homebrewed hybrid skill challenge by really trying to compound, trying to separate out individual players so that everybody is doing something on any given round of the skill challenge and kind of make it more of a compound, like several phase skill challenge, uh, because that also gives me a little bit more of a framework to start crafting the story. Um, the different things that people are picking to do, like internally, I might have a couple of different proficiencies in mind as the star proficiencies. These are the things that I want you to be using to uh, move the story forward. Mm -hmm. And if you're making successes on those, we're going to start moving the story forward. But if the party wants to do other stuff completely, then the story might not advance as quickly. But those successes, um, I do try and bring back in to make it relevant to what people are doing and how the story goes. And ideally, that's kind of invisible to the players. Yeah. Well, you never want a skill challenge to be, oh, oh, I, uh, excuse me, oh, I, I roll that skill too. Right. No, no, never. That's not a skill challenge. Sorry, that's, that's called combat. <laughs> and I really do think that was one of the things that D&D's fourth ed skill challenges missed the mark on by providing the players with exactly what skills they needed to succeed and like a set goal of how many successes they needed or what checkpoints they would get certain bonuses on. Right. I think that made it a little bit more, a little bit too mechanical for a good skill challenge to flow. I think it just benefits from being a little bit more open, less transparent. D &D, well, it, it, it may have been a good stepping point between the people who had played old D&D &D where there was no, the only skill challenge was bend bars. Honestly, bend <laughs> bars is a skill. How often does that come up in daily life? But, more often lifting gates. Okay. Okay. I'll grant that. <clears throat> but um, as a stepping stone, it's useful. But but yeah, I, I like the the more mature systems. The more story-based systems, I'm really liking that, really getting into it. But at the same time, it's really t tough for some people, and I, I, I sympathize. Yeah, fundamentally, the skill challenge is coming from the world of fate and the rules-like games. Uh -huh. This is a place where you are trying to figure out how your skills get put into play in a flexible universe. That is not a place where Dungeons & Dragons players necessarily feel safe. Right. And if you don't have a strong concept of who your character is... It's very hard to come up because you're just looking at the skills, just looking at the skills on a sheet of paper and starting using that as a starting point. That's not really that helpful. You have to think of, oh, I'm playing Arnold Schwarzenegger. How would Arnie deal with this? He'd do it this way, even if it's a stupid thing to do. He'd do it that way. And so you, you have a guidance, whereas if just like you know, I have stealth six and Ben bars five. That doesn't really guide me to how do I express, I don't know. You see what I'm saying, right? I do. I do. And that is something that I've kind of tried to work towards with how I'm just phrasing the questions. Uh -huh. um, the different phases that we go to, you know, I'm generally, if someone kind of hesitates on what they want to do, my question is usually, how do you want to help the party with whatever the current goal is? How do you want to help the party? What, did, what are you doing to move towards the goal of, say, moving through the crowd? I think as the game drifts more towards 2.0 and we have a shorter skill list and fewer skills and stats to draw from, I think learning the skill challenge system and the way you can flexibly use your skills is going to be really important to the, the HSD player base in general. Mm -hmm. And we might want to make sure that gets unpacked if it doesn't occur in the rules naturally and organically. Kind of expanding this out a little bit, though, HSD is... I think at its heart, a less than lethal universe. I mean, you can die really easily, but there's a fair number of things in the rules as written that encourage um, letting the bad guys live, that encourage not murdering people left and right. The game has social repercussions and social costs. That's a good thing. Is there a danger that can kind of turn into more of a G.I. Joe style game, though? I kind of feel like I felt the edges of it already. Like NPCs are going to just laugh their way to the hospital. NPCs will also <laughs> laugh their way to the hospital. There's there's a certain finesse to it that maybe I haven't found the right balance of. Again, not on you. This is more of a general question. No, understood. And slight tangent here, but a, a decently large amount of the theme of my game goes back to the origin story that y'all chose by choosing kind of a um, Firefly-esque space group that, that kind of includes the theme of, well, you're not particularly rich, you don't have a bunch of resources. So you're always going to be kind of on the edge of, you know, scrambling for resources to get what you want, whether uh -huh. that's credits, whether that's allies, whether that's air, what have you. <laughs> like dealing with scarcity is one of the themes. Um, but one of the other themes is 
it's not that scary of a universe. So I've tried to keep some of the really lethal threats scaled back slightly and give you more chances to kind of deal with the system, deal with the setting, and basically learn from your mistakes. Coming at this from a different setting, and certainly came at this from some of the settings that some of the themes that go through a lot of the contracts and kind of underlie some of the subtext in the books, it really is a potentially like much more explosively lethal world, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Um, things might not be very lethal, might not be very lethal, but then suddenly you're in a firefight with real actual guns. And there's a very real danger that people are going to start getting popped off. Right. And the rules do provide a couple of ways to come back from that, but not necessarily to survive that. Kind of seems like the opposite of the early levels of Dungeons and Dragons, where you're this little paper tiger, paper kitten, really, that can't survive a single punch. In Exendraconis, maybe you're much more invulnerable until such time as you're a bigger fish in a small pond, and then you can get squished by the big bads with uh, little or no effort on their part. There's a very large power imbalance inherent to HSD. No kidding. <laughs> and if if you're punching outside of your um, weight tier, or if you're splashing around in a much bigger pond than you're used to, then yes, like the situation can get very dangerous very quickly. Yeah, if everybody is fundamentally a member of a corporation, I'm really surprised in the episode on hot zones that we didn't address what happens when a hot zone gets called on your PC corporation. (laughs) (laughs) Give up. (laughs) Or bring your best negotiator to the table. (laughs) That's when the bard dies. It's fun. (laughs) Or they hire him. Just as a tangent, just. Something you said back earlier, I'm imagining having a security company and naming it IPRF. So you get all the people that mistyped that other company. <laughs> okay, we're changing the party name. <laughs> yes. I think I did want, have one other point for lethality. I think a lot of parties are going to come in with a misconception about where lethality is supposed to be. Because when you, especially if you're coming from like a D&D background, you're going to be starting with, sticks and stones and swords and your immediate response is, well, I need better gear. I need better armor. I need to gear up to get to my desired power level. And HSD does not have that same power growth. Mm. If you're starting with like a bulletproof vest and a pistol and your ideal state is I want to gear up and have some Marsco um, body armor and an assault rifle or two, then you're not really necessarily playing at the less than lethal level anymore you you are walking around as a guy with an assault rifle and body armor and i think society should kind of reflect that and push back against mm-hmm. oh, science fiction universes the if you're playing like an adventurous setting the threat level of weapons is so high i mean they can blast out the back end of a ship if those things are aimed at you you're going to need some serious protection so it's a reasonable mental trap to fall into And it is very much an escalation scenario. If you're bringing a pistol to a sword fight, which is very possible in HSD, then the next time that your opponents, if they walk away, come back, they're going to be bringing assault rifles. If you have assault rifles and body armor, they're going to be bringing the heavy weapons or something that's just completely out of left field. Lawyers. (laughs) Um, you, You can run escalation. You can run escalation very quickly. And this as- escalation gets really, really lethal very quickly. If the party isn't really very aware of that fact, and if the GM isn't kind of keeping some of the consequences of uh, running around with a fully armored party kind of front and center, um, you can very easily put yourself into a situation, a combat situation, where party members can just eat a grenade and die and not not have any recourse, short of just fudging the numbers that's an image that's going to linger for a while i think (laughs) here's another one attack drones with adorable little babies strapped to them (laughs) there comes a time in each man's life when he can't even believe his own eyes well after your description i don't think i'd want to see it either So we'll wrap up this session of host chatter with what news and stories and products and whatever from the actual honest to gosh real world we thought were awesome this week. I'd just like to say that 
I got to hold one of the uh, boring company's flamethrowers. I am insanely jealous. <laughs> did, did not get to fire it, but I got to hold it, which is which is pretty fun. It was kind of collectible. We shouldn't be firing no, it. No, not indoors. <laughs> I'll have a picture of Wines holding a boring flamethrower and a boring baseball cap up. <laughs> and Ashtar's scream of jealous rage. <laughs> I was particularly excited by an article describing a new and useless phase of matter. This was uh, due to the research of the Vienna University of Technology. I think they were the same group that also made light travel in tight little spirals, which actually had the useful application of having ridiculously high bandwidth for data transmission. But this is just kind of luggage stacking for the sake of lug luggage stacking. By taking a an atom floating in a baryon gas cloud at extremely, extremely, extremely low temperatures, scientists were able to aim a laser at the poor thing, expand its electron cloud out to a ludicrous distance, and then shove 170 other atoms inside of this one atom where they kind of loosely bonded together in the elect electron cloud there are no benefits to this. This is really science for the sake of science, which happens a lot in physics anyway. <laughs> but it was it was very interesting and kind of an outgrowth of, of studying how physics and matter interact at extremely cold temperatures. And research really can be its own product, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that's that's okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. The, the, the pure physics of studying pushing lions downstairs is all worthwhile on its own. <laughs> <laughs> We're going for distance this year. Yes. Staring into the limits of infinity for its own sake. Anything from you? Just the over-the-top extravagance of having a car floating in space with a spacesuit in it and just giving a wave to the world. It just, I, I'm still pretty cool on that. So, so where is the car? Is it on its way to Mars or is it in orbit? If I remember right, it is definitely on an exit trajectory. I think it's aimed in Mars's general direction. Okay. Um, Depending on how you define this, its mileage could be either very, very high or very, very low. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I guess we'll find out whether the, uh, the, the Tesla autopilot can actually make it there. <laughs> uh, well, I, I don't think we have anything else to say on these important topics. So until next time, catch the outro line. Intro music is Future Club and outro music is Chronicles, both by Sirius Beat. This podcast is copyright 2017 by Radio Free Demos and may be used in any not-for-profit project with appropriate credit and notification. Check out our website, RadioFreeDemos.com, that's D-E-I-M-O-S, for more rambling, resources, links to official and fan-driven content, and our full catalog of episodes. And look for us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Itty bitty Zolo mittens. Booties. Zolo booties. And a big sock to pull over his head. <laughs>